celebrating Christmas across the city in South Cambridgeshire. Cambridge 105 Radio. An ordinance of the Lords and Commons assembled in Parliament for the better observation of the Feast of the Nativity of Christ. The Day of the Lord, 19th December, 1644. Whereas some doubts have been raised whether the next fast shall be celebrated, because it falleth on the Feast of the Nativity of our Saviour. The Lords and Commons in Parliament assembled do order and ordain that this day be kept with the more solemn humiliation, because it may call to remembrance our sins and the sins of our forefathers, who have turned this feast, pretending the memory of Christ, into an extreme forgetfulness of him, by giving liberty to carnal and sensual delights. I'm here in Huntingdon, standing outside the Cromwell Museum, which is a lovely medieval building, all that's left of a medieval priory, with an absolutely splendid Norman archway, which has been filled in. But Across the street, actually stretched across the street, just outside it, is a big sign to be illuminated at night, and it says, Huntington, Christmas 2022. And since Oliver Cromwell is best known for having banned Christmas, or so at any rate we've always believed, it does seem a little bit ironic that there should be such a big Christmas celebration outside the Cromwell Museum of all places. But have we actually got it wrong? Is, this, is it in fact true that Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas? What's the actual story behind it? What indeed? I'm Dr Sean Lang and I teach history at Anglia Ruskin University. And in this programme, I'm going to look into the story of Cromwell and the cancellation of Christmas. Any mention of Oliver Cromwell takes us back to the 17th century, the time of the Stuart kings, James I and his son, Charles I. It's the time of the civil wars between Crown and Parliament, royalists against parliamentarians, cavaliers against roundheads, as well as a major rebellion in Ireland and civil war in Scotland. It was all happening then, I can tell you. You may have seen some of the battles of the period reenacted by modern-day enthusiasts like the Sealed Knot. But don't be fooled by the colourful costumes. It was a traumatic time of killing and cruelty, much like any other civil war. To make things worse, these wars weren't just about whether the King or Parliament should rule. They were also about religion. Nowadays, We are happy to let people believe and worship or not as they like. But that wasn't the case in the 16th and 17th centuries. People's religious beliefs then were much like their political beliefs nowadays, and they provoked much the same sort of reaction. Just as we see political extremists today as dangerous, so people in the 17th century regarded religious extremists as far too dangerous to be left to their own devices. Right at the start of the century, a group of Catholics had staged an attempted coup which nearly destroyed the King and the whole of Parliament in the famous Gunpowder Plot. And many people still regarded anything Catholic, including Christmas, with deep suspicion. None more so than the Puritans. Now, we often hear of these people, but who and what exactly were Puritans? What did they want? And how did they intend to get it? To find out, I spoke to the Cromwell Museum's curator, Stuart Orme. 
Um, Puritans today is a sort of term that we tend to sort of look at as being something quite pejorative. To be puritanical is sort of, you know, somebody who is uh, a bit of a killjoy, sort of someone who is uh, very straight-laced. Um, in a 17th century context, it's broadly speaking a group of people who within the Church of England, so they're not separate to the Church, they are within the Church, but they are uh, more hardline Protestants who think that the Reformation hasn't gone quite far enough that there are still too many pieces, parts of ritual that are sort of too Catholic orientated who would like to see it sort of move in a more kind of Calvinist direction theologically in terms of its uh, type of worship, who think that uh, church worship and understanding of God is through sermons, through direct uh, reading and interpretation of the Bible and through prayer. Um, they are, however, a very broad community. Uh, they refer to themselves as the godly, and we tend to think of them today of having this very strict uniform of all being dressed in black. This is a stereotype created by the, Puri by the Victorians who misinterpreted portrait evidence of the time. Black was actually the most expensive cloth dye in the 17th century. Um, and there are, you know, a broad spectrum of opinions within the Puritan movement, as it were, the godly, as they termed themselves. So Puritans wanted a country run along strict religious lines, ruled by prayer, much as had already been done by the Presbyterians in Scotland. And one of the things the Scots had done to make their country more godly was to ban Christmas, or Christ's Mass, as the Puritans liked to call it. Perhaps it's time to find out more about Christmas in this period. What was it like? How was it celebrated? Dr Miranda Malins is a historian and a novelist who has specialised in the 17th century and knows a lot about how people used to celebrate Christmas. I asked her, if we could go back in time and see a 17th century Christmas, how much of it would look familiar? Well, a lot of it, I think, actually. Um, not the aspects that uh, were brought in by the Victorians, famously, the idea of the Christmas tree, the Christmas card, um, your Charles Dickens kind of Christmas. But a, a lot of the older aspects of Christmas festivities, um, the medieval ones would have been there. There would have been um, uh, eat, uh, feasting and, you know, lovely food, special food, things like mince pies um, and, you know, hot drinks. Uh, there was... Uh, in fact, they had a whole um, 12 days of Christmas, you know, the 12 days of Christmas that we know now was actually really an official period of celebration um, where, you know, everyone took time off and spent time with their family and sang sang Christmas songs and they went to church Christmas Day. They gave each other presents. Um, so, you know, decorated the house with holly and ivy. Um, so actually a, a lot of it would have been very familiar to us now if we were parachuted back and, and into a, to sit around a Christmas um, dinner table uh, during the 1640s or 50s. Uh, one that was, you know, secretly happening behind closed doors. We'd have, uh, we'd have known what to do, I think. I must say it does sound rather fun. So what, unless you were a real killjoy, was the problem with Christmas? Stuart Orme. Well, a lot of hardline Protestants across Europe had kind of started to develop a, uh, concerns about Christmas, really going back to sort of the early 1600s, and there are a number of strands to their objections. First of all, there's an increasing interest in antiquarianism and sort of Renaissance, looking back to sort of classical history and so on. There's awareness that a lot of Christmas traditions 
are actually pagan influenced. So everything from decorations to uh, sort of uh, a lot of kind of Puritans start to equate the kind of wild parties and so on, Christmas games and things like the Lord of Misrule with either things like uh, Yule and Viking celebrations, or of course the Roman celebration of Saturnalia, these midwinter festivals. So there's concerns that it's a bit pagan. Then there's, of course, also the concerns that it's also still far too Catholic, which is a lot of their beef in general with sort of um, much of the ritual within the church. They think it's also getting far too drunken and licentious. It's getting far too out of hand. And also from a theological point of view, these are people who believe literally in the word of God as they understand it from the Bible. And from their readings of the Bible, although it describes the Christmas story in the Bible, there's nothing in there to say that you need to celebrate Christmas. So the Puritans are basically saying, well, look, you know, we're getting out. We've got the instruction manual that we've got here. The New Testament doesn't tell us we have to celebrate this. So why are we doing this? But under that, you could say you don't celebrate anything because the Bible doesn't tell you to celebrate anything. Well, absolutely. In terms of this, and of course, lots of other festivals also fall under this sort of thing as well. And they, you know, obviously the legislation that's introduced uh, finally uh, in, in enforcing this ban in June 1647 isn't just a ban on Christmas. It's a ban on Easter. It's a ban on most of these other religious festivals, including more secular festivals like May Day, for example. So the idea was to ban not just Christmas but any big jolly, including Easter and any saints' days, as part of a programme of what we might nowadays call national renewal, to get the whole country fasting and praying and generally turning back to God. So in 1644, Parliament took the opportunity of the monthly day of fasting falling on Christmas Day to ban the feast day entirely. A new Book of Common Prayer, published the following year, had no mention of any special prayers or services to mark Christmas. The formal ban was passed by Parliament in 1647. What did all this mean in practice? John Evelyn was a writer, minor government official and garden designer who kept a detailed diary of the time. This was his account of Christmas in 1652. Christmas Day. No sermon anywhere, no church being permitted to open, so observed it at home. The next day we went to Lewisham, where an honest divine preached. That honest divine had to be careful, because preaching on Christmas Day could land you in serious trouble. Here is Evelyn's account of what happened when he attended church on Christmas Day in 1657. I went to London with my wife to celebrate Christmas Day. Mr Gunning preached in Exeter Chapel. Sermon ended, and as he was giving us the Holy Sacrament, the chapel was surrounded with soldiers, and all the communicants and assembly were surprised and kept prisoners by them, some in the house, others carried away. In the afternoon came Colonel Wally, Goff and others from Whitehall to examine us one by one. Some they committed to the marshal, some to prison. When I came before them, they took my name and abode, examined me why, contrary to the ordinance made that none should any longer observe the superstitious time of the nativity, so esteemed by them, I durst offend and particularly be at common prayers, which they told me was but the Mass in English, and particularly pray for Charles Stuart, 
for which we had no scripture. I told them we did not pray for Charles Stuart, but for all Christian kings, princes and governors. They replied, in so doing we prayed for the king of Spain too, who was their enemy and a papist. With other frivolous and ensnaring questions and much threatening, and finding no colour to detain me, they dismissed me with much pity of my ignorance. This would certainly seem to suggest that the authorities, or some of them at any rate, took the ban on Christmas seriously. But it also suggests that, even if they couldn't have the traditional 12 days of merriment, some people were prepared to take the risk to mark Christmas Day by going to church. So who had the job of enforcing the ban? Stuart Orm. It would be largely through sort of the local authorities. And of course, this is part of the problem with any of these sorts of moral bans um, in an early modern period is who does enforce these things and therefore how effective they are. Um, we only got to think about over the last few years, you know, with the COVID restrictions, for example, how many people, even some even in power, who broke the various restrictions and so on. And that's with the modern police force, CCTV, everybody having mobile phones, social media, all the rest of it in a much smaller society in the 17th century, particularly a rural society, um, without a modern police force, in fact, very little in the way of law enforcement as we would understand it today at all, it's very difficult to see how many of these bans could actually be enforced. And increasingly, as we see as we'll go on, um, actually, uh, you know, it becomes quite apparent that actually the Christmas ban isn't terribly effective. Effective or not, how did the ban go down with people? Miranda Malins trying to make Christmas Day an ordinary day, an ordinary working day, where shops and businesses are open, Parliament sits, Parliament sits on ver in various years when it's Christmas Day is a working day. And um, the idea is to shift the focus back onto Sunday, onto the Sabbath, and for that to be the day of rest where shops are closed, Parliament doesn't sit, etc. Um, and they even do bring in um, a sort of replacement secular bank holiday almost uh, um, to replace all of these saints days which they get rid of so they're not entirely um, unfeeling towards um, the general population having a, having a bit of time off. So was it a very unpopular move um, and because when the king comes back Christmas comes back as well was there a real resentment of the banning of Christmas? Yes I think so um, and certainly there were various sort of uprisings and 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 little rebellions mm. against it um so i think it was deeply unpopular to to cancel something which was so um uh, important and so sort of established in in the um in the pattern of people's lives one example of the sort of trouble miranda mentioned happened at canterbury where the mayor had ordered that a market be held and that shops should open up for business as usual on christmas day this did not go down well with the people of the town the market didn't happen, which left the people in the countryside roundabout angry because they ran short of supplies. As for the shops, only a dozen of them obeyed the mayor's order, and they were soon attacked by a crowd demanding that they shut their doors and overturning their merchandise until they did so. That was when the mayor tried to take a hand. The mayor and his assistants used their best endeavours to qualify this tumult, but the fire being once kindled, it was not easily quenched. The sheriff, laying hold of a fellow, was stoutly resisted. Then the mayor, seeing this, took a cudgel and struck the man. 
But he, being no puny fellow, pulled up his courage and knocked the mare down. So his cloak was torn and dirty beside the hurt he received. So the mayor made strict proclamation for keeping the peace, and that every man should depart to his own house. But the multitude jeered at that, in a disorderly manner. The aldermen and constables caught two or three of the mob and sent them to jail, but they soon broke loose and jeered Master Alderman. Soon after issued forth the commanders of this rabble, with the addition of some soldiers, into the high street, bringing with them two footballs whereby their company increased. The mayor and aldermen, seeing this, they took the prisoners they had and would have carried them to the jail, but the crowd followed them down to the king's bench, where Captain Bridge, who opposed them, was straight knocked down and had his head broke in two places, not being able to withstand the multitude. And they, getting betwixt him and the jail, rescued their fellows, beat the mayor and aldermen into their houses, and then cried, Conquest! There were other outbreaks of similar trouble in London, Ipswich and Norwich. Clearly, banning Christmas was not going down well. Moreover, right from the start, some people attacked the ban in print. One pamphlet, written in 1647 by T.J., a well-wisher to King, Parliament and Kingdom, included the ban on Christmas as part of a general description of the ridiculous fashions of these distracted times, in what he called the world turned upside down. Then, five years later, just after Parliament had restated the instruction that shops should stay open as normal on Christmas Day, a sure sign that many of them weren't, a pamphlet appeared called A Vindication of Christmas. It was written by one John Taylor, and it argued that Parliament had no right to ban people's Christmas festivities and demanded that they be restored. Its front cover showed three men, one of them a soldier telling Christmas to keep out, one a good honest chap telling Christmas he was welcome and to have no fear, and there in the middle, wearing a hat and a long robe and with a long beard, is the figure of Christmas himself, telling the unfriendly soldier, Oh sir, I bring good cheer. It is perhaps the earliest figure we have of Father Christmas. Six years later, another pamphlet appeared, also attacking the ban on Christmas, this time testing the arguments for and against by actually putting Father Christmas on trial, for encouraging His Majesty's subjects in idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, gaming, swearing, rioting and all manner of extravagance and debauchery, with obvious echoes of the trial of King Charles I only nine years earlier. Unlike the King, however, Father Christmas was acquitted. But what of Cromwell? If it was Parliament that actually banned Christmas, where did he fit into the story? Was he one of those who enforced the ban, or was he a secret mince pie guzzler? Miranda Malins. Well, we don't know much about Cromwell's personal views of Christmas, which in itself is quite telling. Um, because again, he has acquired this unfortunate uh, reputation uh, for being the the kind of Scrooge of history who cancelled Christmas, whereas in fact Christmas was cancelled by Parliament during the Civil Wars uh, when Oliver was away fighting and and had nothing to do with it. Um, it's true that under uh, you know five years later and and more when he was head of state as Lord Protector, he did not reverse any of that legislation. 
Um, and so Christmas continued to be um, cancelled, as it were, under his um, rule. But he didn't take, neither did he take any particular steps, proactive steps to get involved in the argument or to crack down upon celebrating Christmas. Uh, we don't have in the vast um, quantities of his writing, speeches, letters that we have today, we don't have any mentions of Christmas or what he thought about it. Um, so it's likely, based on what we know of his style of Puritanism and his families, that he and his family didn't really celebrate Christmas, particularly themselves. Um, but I think it's equally likely, given Cromwell's tolerant attitude um, to the ways in which other people celebrated their own um, Christian faith, um, that he wasn't that fussed about how other people celebrated it either. So, although Cromwell wasn't actually responsible for bringing in the ban on Christmas, it certainly remained in force while he was in power, even if he himself turned a blind eye to any Christmas parties the neighbours might be holding. So, perhaps the Cromwell-banned Christmas accusation isn't exactly accurate, but it's not exactly wrong either. But what about Cromwell himself? Did banning Christmas fit in with his general style and outlook? Was he really one of history's great killjoys? Well, it's such a good question and a question that is so rarely asked uh, because we're all so familiar, aren't we, with this uh, this caricature of Cromwell, um, who is a uh, door and uh, wearing black, very joyless. Um, he gets his kicks from uh, pulling down maypoles and cancelling Christmas and he kills the king. You know, just generally not, not a fun... A party pooper. <laughs> a party pooper, if ever there was one. I mean, the ultimate party pooper. And um, I have great fun in my work in trying to overturn that assumption because it's it's actually really far, far from the mark. Um, because, yes, of course, as with all myths in history, there's a, a there's a nugget of truth in there. Cromwell was a Puritan and very devout. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, did have quite austere views on various things um, to do which came from his Puritan faith. Um, but actually, he was far more of a classic 17th century country gentleman. Um, than we think of today. He loved to um, uh, hunting and hawking, horse racing. Uh, he loved drinking, smoking, uh, having a you know a big chat with all sorts of people, um, lively conversation over a glass of wine. Um, you know that that was what he enjoyed. Um, and certainly his home life and his life once he was head of state as Lord Protector, his court was actually very colourful and joyful, full of um, feasting and musical entertainments. Uh, and even mixed dancing at his daughter's very lavish weddings, which was much uh, remarked upon at the time. Um, uh, so, yes, he's he's not the killjoy that we uh, we like to think, not at all. So even if he didn't make merry at Christmas himself, perhaps we've got Cromwell wrong. He sounds really quite jolly company, as long as you keep the mince pies hidden. Well, all things come to an end. Cromwell died quite unexpectedly in 1658 leaving no clear provision for what was to happen next. And for two years, there was complete confusion, infighting and instability in the government. Some things don't change. Until in 1660, an army general, George Monk, essentially staged a coup, marched on London with his troops and issued an invitation to Charles Stuart, the old king's eldest son, who had been living in exile in the Netherlands, to return to England as King Charles II. The experiment with a republic was over and England was to be a monarchy once more. It was still a bit of a gamble, 
No one could be sure how Charles would be received. But one easy thing Charles could do to get some quick popular support was to reverse the ban on Christmas and let people party again. It was quite easy to do, as Miranda Malins explains. Although there were there were little there were moments, um, particularly during the rule of the major generals in Christmas 1655, um, where there was a bit of a crackdown on on the celebration of Christmas in general. I think a lot of people carried on celebrating Christmas just a bit quietly in their own homes. No one really paid any attention. Um, and so, you know, the, the traditions continued sufficiently that when Charles II came back in the restoration and uh, Christmas was reinstated, it had never really gone away. Certainly, people were soon partying like it was 1660. Another celebrated diarist of the time, Samuel Pepys, like Cromwell, a product of Huntington Grammar School, clearly couldn't keep pace with his wife and her family, who sound serious party animals, in the rowdy Christmas celebrations of 1664. I went to bed, leaving my wife and all her folks, and Will also, to come to make Christmas gambles tonight. I waked in the morning, about six o'clock, and my wife was not come to bed. I lacked a pot, there was none, it was bitter cold, so was forced to rise and pee in the chimney, and to bed again. Slept a little longer, then hear my people coming up, so I rose, and my wife to bed at eight o'clock in the morning, which vexed me a little. But I believe there was no hurt in it all, but only mirth, therefore took no notice. Many years later, Ebenezer Scrooge would view Christmas as a lot of humbug. And even today, you don't have to be a Grinch to find that Christmas can sometimes get a bit much. It's well known that Christmas can put a strain on families and can be a lonely time for people on their own. But I don't think many of us would want to go back to Cromwell's time, when Christmas really was cancelled, even if he didn't actually do the cancelling. So, next time you hear someone at a party saying that Cromwell banned Christmas, you can tell them where they've got it wrong and just watch the room empty as you do it. So, that's that cleared up. My thanks to Stuart Orme of the Cromwell Museum and to Dr Miranda Malins, to Peter Simmons for reading the historical extracts and to my producer, Imogen Lang, for putting it all together. And a Merry Christmas to you all.